0: Up next on Episode 49 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff, along with guest Alex Papadimoulos of the Daily WTF, discuss the distinction between sysadmins and programmers, online justice for web forums, user-friendly IDs for databases, and the future of software distribution from IT Conversations.
1: Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Did you see the sunrise this morning?
2: We're not making up that late. Who, me? Yeah, Jeff. You normally Uh, seem to stay pretty...
3: No, I don't remember, actually. It all blends (laughs) together after a while. What's going on there? (laughs) (laughs) Snap
4: out of it, man. We've got a podcast to do. Um, I'm I'm ready. All right.
3: To do the podcast.
4: Okay. The Daily WTF. And WTF
2: stands for. Worse than failure. Oh, really? That, uh, that was established. Yeah, we, we actually that. established that a couple, uh, a couple years that. ago. I don't know if you guys remember. There was a, there was a vote. In you know, a bit of a name change on the site, and people were not happy. Didn't work out so well, no. Uh, in in retrospect, probably keeping it the daily WTF was was the way to go. Um, you know, I don't know what it was. It was just it didn't feel right saying it because you know we we obviously talk about the site here at the office, and uh, it just every time any of us said worse than failure, it just it didn't quite fit. No, so, that's it's uh, um,
4: it's like it's like a it's like a boulderized version of Shakespeare or something with all the the good stuff
2: taken out. More or less, yeah, and I don't know why, yeah, I it, it's hard to say. I mean, Disney at the time movie. it seemed like a good idea to 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 kind of go with the name change, but uh, you know, kind of kind of glad to be back to uh back to the old name or the real name, whatever you want to, you know, call it.
3: We are for yeah, our Changing listeners. the name. Yeah. Changing the name was like the ultimate WTF. I think everybody was just sort of scratching <laughs> their head going, "Wow, that's that's a real WTF right there. It's like you why, why would you inside? change your name?" You, have well, really I'll tell you kind name. of like new Coke. No, no, you have a really good name. I want to change it to something really crappy to see what happens.
2: <laughs> well, oh, in okay. fairness, I thought the name was good. I thought it was a clever backronym. Wow. But I'll tell you, it was the result of groupthink. You know, I don't know if you guys it's have committee,
4: ever... It's a the committee. It's decisions by committee. Yeah. You keep yeah, going I mean, until I, nobody finds any offense in something. And also nobody finds any delight in the thing.
2: Yes. Well, no, I mean, we all like the name. You know, we're like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Everyone's going to love it because it's kind of clever. It's kind of because, you know, but yeah, it was just we all tricked ourselves into thinking that it was the right way to go. So
4: who's, who's who is who's we? Who else is there? What, what's this office? This is this is a whole institution behind this uh, daily WTF. I thought it was just a guy with a blog.
2: Well, yeah, it is a guy with a blog. I'm the guy and, and, you know, obviously I have the the blog. But I do have a a job, uh, a a day job at uh, Inito and we're a software company that is in the business of helping other software companies develop software better. That's kind of the, I'm still working on the elevator pitch exactly. But, you know, basically it's, it's, you know, we're in best practices consulting and, and that sort of thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Well we used to do a lot of uh, uh I mean we still do. We still do kind of custom proprietary business software. Um but I don't know, have you guys developed uh, uh that I mean I know Joel you're primarily, you know, with, with products, right? You know, fog fog bugs and, and city desk and uh a co right? Exactly. Um, yeah, totally. No we haven't done any consulting for a long time. We did it in yeah, the early and- days to raise some money, but you know, I I really liked it. Loved the uh, you know, loved doing the business applications. But I'll tell you, it gets you know, it, it's I think it's a little more exciting to to kind of work in this realm. And you know, I've been doing uh, the you know, helping people do the the better software, whether it's you know, the continuous integration or you know, whatever whatever's uh, going to help the process go better. Um, but what's what's fun is the daily WTF kind of really has helped uh, me learn. Just how wrong so much, uh, how how wrong software is, you know, or at least software development in so many places. So it's kind of given a unique perspective on things.
4: We are talking today to Alex Papadimoulis, who is the uh, blogger at uh, the Daily WTF, which is a blog if you haven't seen it about all kinds of uh, things going wrong in software development. Right? It's all it's mostly software development, although I see wine bottles here on the front page.
2: Information technology, but yeah, generally, uh, yeah, generally, software development. How do you? What is? What is?
4: Is there a difference between information technology and software development?
2: I I like to think IT kind of encompasses, you know, maybe the network, you know, whereas Mm -hmm. IT is a broader domain. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: You know, software is just the you know internal applications, external applications, whereas the uh, you know. IT organization handles all the servers, you know, the desktops, um, phone systems, you know, they seem to, they seem to get it all.
4: And you guys always have, um, besides having um, like actual bodies of, of bad code, um, you, th- th- things are always written in, and it's kind of an exciting story-like way. Do you get these things like submitted from people and then rewrite them? Is that what goes on there? Or do well, yeah, they just I submit mean, them correctly in the first place?
2: You know, very rarely, and I'll, well, I'll tell you a little little bit of background. You know, I mean, we started doing all exclusively code, which, you know, the bad code's kind of fun. You know, fun to read, but you mm-hmm. know, I think I like writing, and I know uh, Jake, he helps out on site. Mark, you know, we all like writing, and it just just kind of fell into the format of you know starting with a uh, a fun paragraph at the beginning of a code snippet to really just um, writing writing stories kind of in a unique manner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you guys read uh, Discover Magazine, but Vital Signs uh, sometimes serves as uh, inspiration for how we try to tell stories, you know. Um, you know, at the end of the day, some of these things can be pretty boring, you know, uh, yeah. in software development.
4: And it's, um, yeah, although it is funny to read some of, these, uh, some of these code, I'm just reading this one where a guy has created a bunch of constants for every possible number of spaces and then written <laughs> what looks like the most horrible select <laughs> statement. So he's... Basically, re-implemented
2: a function that is already available for you. Oh, and I believe, you know, uh, I think that one's spaced out. Spaced yeah, out. And he not only did that, but he re-implemented a few times in his own code, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty impressive, I, I might say. And uh, so this is sort of humorous, but on the other hand, you sort of feel sorry for these people who are
4: writing bad code. Almost, you, you imagine that they're sort of like they've woken up in the middle of the night and they're feverish. And they don't completely understand what's going on around them, and they need to somehow make their computer do something. And and through the haze and the fog of the the high fever and the nausea and the explosive diarrhea, they're trying to write a function (laughs) that produces a given number of spaces. And they just do the best they can, and you sort of have to feel sorry for them a little bit creating code like this.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a part of it. I mean, definitely you got the guys who are really struggling, but I, you know, I've worked with enough developers, you know, especially in in some of the larger companies where it's their way of life. You know, they they don't see this as bad. They they you know, it's it's kind of like yeah, you know, it works. Sure, it might be a lot of duct tape, a lot of uh, yeah, you know, patched together, but they you know. That's the way they work. see it. So. And there is,
4: I mean, to, to, isn't that being pragmatic? Isn't that the ultimate uh, goal as a programmer,
2: to be a pragmatic programmer? Hey, the code works. <laughs> I don't know if that's quite what uh, the pragmatic <laughs> programmer is supposed to be, but <laughs> I guess that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. My uh,
3: my favorite WTF, one that we still refer to, actually, after
2: all these years, was the, uh,
3: and Alex, I don't know if you remember this one, was the... Uh, have you tried JavaScript, guy? <laughs>
2: have you tried?
3: Uh, you, well, so they ha- they're having this big meeting. They're talking about these really technical things. And there's this one guy there. who's just a doofus. He doesn't know anything about anything. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the guy sort of leans over, you know, very, very seriously and says, Have, have you tried JavaScript? That's, that's <laughs> and I it's really like they're <laughs> not even remotely talking about JavaScript. You know, it's like it has nothing at all to do with what they're doing. I, I, had, just, I, had, the, I had
4: that person. I was in a meeting at... MTV with a very hyperactive executive who now this was like 1994 1995 the web just come out we're talking Netscape 2.0 and the uh, and she wanted an effect where when you click from one page to the other the web browser would crumple up like a piece of paper that had been crumpled up and thrown across the page and then another page would then appear and I can see where she got this idea, because she was from television, right? And this is like this. This is like an effect that you have programmed into your little television switcheroony things. And yet, of course, there's no way to do anything even remotely like that in HTML. I mean, now you could probably do something with Flash or whatever. But at the time, there was no way to do anything even remotely like that. So he said, this absolutely cannot be done with HTML. What you're describing is not, we cannot do that on the web today, ever under any circumstances. No. And she said... What if you use SQL Server? I heard that SQL Server was amazing. Because <laughs> I guess somebody had been telling her about all the awesome new features in SQL Server 6.0. That's, yeah.
2: uh, you know, it it, it amazing. I've run it. I, I think I've worked or at least seen the same person, too, because yeah. that's a recurring thing. Yeah. Uh, if it's, and if it's not, you know, SQL Server, I often get methodology. Well, can, why don't we do uh, test-driven development? Or uh, let's try Scrum. <laughs> right, you know, can right. you do it in Scrum? Right. You know, so this
4: is what I sometimes refer to. This is management by Delta Airlines in-flight magazine, where your boss has read something in the in-flight magazine on the plane, and and then wants you to then implement that somehow.
2: I kind of like that. Yeah, And I, I can see that happening too.
4: Um, anyway, let's let's uh, let's get on with the show, Jeff. What's what's new in the world of the stacks
3: and the overflows? Well, and um, the, um, I saw we have a logo. Of, yes, we have a logo for server fault. So server fault. That's yeah. that's going to be the name. Is, false. Yeah, com. so we're going to have a new IT themed website, sort of like Stack Overflow, but for things that are not programming but are in the IT sphere. Sort of what Alex was talking about earlier, which has to do and, and the way I define this. So one thing that already comes up, and I know Michael has already given me some crap about this. Was, yeah, how do you find what question goes where? Yeah, and first of all, it's always going to be a little bit of a gray area. There's never going to be you know a, a perfect dividing line saying this this question belongs here, this question belongs here. You know, the old animal, vegetable, mineral problem. It's just Mm -hmm. never going to go away. But that said, I feel like there are some criteria. And I'm going to actually blog about this later to make it more clear now that we have two sites. But for Stack Overflow, obviously, it's things that relate to programming. Mm -hmm. Now, this can be unclear. Like, what's... Your favorite programmer's food. And we've talked about this where people will say, ask any question you want, just add for a programmer. And then it becomes okay to ask you know, on Stack Overflow. What's your favorite color for a programmer? You know?
4: What would be the best episode
3: of Buffy the Vampire Slayer if you're a programmer? If you're a programmer.
4: programmer. Last night.
3: Yeah, that you saw. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and I think there's a couple things that make it work. One is if, if you can reference code specifically, talk about the code that you've written or the code that you're going to write or code that you've looked at, that helps tremendously in, in sort of legitimizing your question for Stack Overflow. That's something we definitely look at. Uh, now, that said, there's questions that don't necessarily involve code that still involve sort of the working life of a programmer. Yeah, best keyboard. And I think keyboard. it's really. Go ahead.
4: Best keyboard, for example.
3: Yeah, that's totally relevant. Like, I would totally leave that. And then there was one on working conditions that I thought was great, and people wanted to close. And I said, well, this is certainly relevant to a programmer. Working conditions as a programmer? I think that's very relevant. Sure. And I, I think the highest voted answer was uh, about interruptions, which is a classic programmer thing. You know, No matter what conditions you're under, if you're just being interrupted, it just can't be. Those are, by definition, bad conditions. That's always worth talking about, right? So it, there's, a, there's a sphere of questions that are valid. Now, when it comes to server fault, I think the criteria is going to be, does this, does this have to do with servers? Does it have to do with networking? Uh, and does it have to do with uh, IT at a professional level? In mm-hmm. other words, you're sort of paid to do this stuff. So you're at a job where you have to deploy you know, 10,000 desktops of Office, and you have a question about you know, how that's done and some of the technical things around it. Uh, and I, I think those are the criteria we're going to use for, for server fault. To determine if a question belongs there. And we're also going to let you move questions from Stack Overflow to Server Fault and vice versa. I don't think we'll have too many programming questions on Server Fault, I would think. But we certainly do have questions right now on Stack Overflow that really belong
2: on Server Fault and will be moved over. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are. Cool. Um, now, will the same rule apply if you just say for a network admin, it's therefore appropriate for uh, Server Fault?
3: Oh, I'm sure that'll come up. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of suspect that there's going to be a different community that forms around the site. Now, initially, it is going to be largely Stack Overflow users because I just had such a difficult time plugging into the IT sysadmin community on the web. Like, I just is there a big really, community? I well, no. really couldn't find one, honestly. <laughs> it weird. really surprised me. It seems like there's this huge community of programmers, but then when it comes to sysadmins and ITs and stuff, there's just not... Not really anything significant. They out might be there more divided,
4: like there's SQL Server DBAs, there's Oracle DBAs. Yeah. There's, I think they're much more fragmented. Novell certified technicians. Much more fragmented.
3: Yeah. In fact, I had people write me and tell me that. So they said it's just way too fragmented. You're not going to get any notable, any major personalities hmm. uh, in IT system. And, but that said, I think one of the reasons we want this site, I know one of the reasons I selfishly want it, is because I have. IT system in questions all the time yeah. that come up because, you know, we build the Stack Overflow servers and just general stuff that comes up that I can't ask on Stack Overflow. And uh, I'll be able to ask them on server Fault finally. So I think it's it's okay, I think, to seed the community with, there's enough crossover with existing programmers that actually do system in type stuff that I think it's okay. We just got to have a beta period where we, you know, iron out the bugs and see what kind of content we're going to get and stuff like that. We can't go live with a blank site. Right. That would probably not work well. So the beta is coming this month for sure. And then we're going to essentially let anyone from Stack Overflow who wants to be on, there'll be some minimum rep threshold, I think 200. Uh, and then by special invitation, anybody else who needs to come in. So that's for just for the beta period, and then we'll open it to the world after. It's going to be a pretty short beta, because we know the software is pretty solid now, based on Stack Overflow. It's really, mm-hmm. the only thing we're really going to be betting, frankly, is changing the style sheet changing uh, the content to match, you know, the words around, you know, what the site is and who it's for and stuff like that.
2: So I'm I'm curious, from a a software perspective, are you, like, branching, or is this now the same code base, different uh, web config, or however?
3: Well, the general theme is same code base, different web config. You know, I think it would be weird to put that much information in the web config. We're probably going to have some other configuration files that it's going to read at startup to get styling and stuff like that uh, but largely we want it to be the same code base we definitely don't want to be in a situation where we have a branch that so we have to maintain that seems unsustainable to me
2: mm-hmm. it's so, yeah yeah definitely a pain is this
3: going to be like localization for dummies you know we're going to localize just the stuff that's required to make content related stuff you know it's not necessarily about programming it's about you know sysadmin and it stuff so, but I probably shouldn't talk about localization because I pissed off so many people uh, last week. <laughs> Are you? Have you, um, have you,
4: what's the word, recanted?
3: I think there's, no, I haven't. And, and <laughs> I, I, I should apologize. I, I didn't mean to offend anyone by saying that like, if you don't know English, that you suck. That was not my intent with my statements. No, I just edited it to make it sound that way. No, no, actually... <laughs> I, I could have been more clear, uh, but I think there's two things. One is that, you know, we have to serve our primary audience really well. And for programmers, I really believe that the primary audience in terms of just reaching the biggest number of people that are programming is really going to be in English. So that that's what we have to focus on. Uh, so that's point number one. And point number two is that it's perfectly fine to have, you know, other communities form around other languages. And actually, it sort of bothered me a little, Joel, that y- you sort of implied that we like had to own this whole pie like if if people were talking about programming in any language then we want them to be on stack overflow and i don't necessarily believe that to be true at least that's not really my goal is to sort of own the world of programming um i just want to have one place that we're building that's centered around english uh because we believe i believe personally it's de facto language of of programming uh and, and that's really all and it, you know, if, if, you, if you know English, that's great, and if you don't know English, uh, that's fine too. There's plenty of other places you can go. I don't think that we need to own the whole pie. The,
2: the part that I never understood about programming in another language is the keywords. You know, I speak, only, you know, I only speak English, so, you know, for me, it'd be hard to imagine, I mean, programming in another language, you know, uh, code comments, variable names, things like that. I've seen plenty of foreign code. Is that I mean, is that kind of the, you know, it's driving your overall thought as well? You know, the C-spec, the, the, you know, VB-spec, whatever, all these are, you know, English keywords that define the language, therefore you have to know English? Do you, do no, they, do, I mean, the, the English words, the keywords themselves, like
4: select, that's not, I mean, that's just an arbitrary, it's an almost arbitrary word. If I gave you a programming language where I said, instead of select, we now have, you know you can memorize that one thing there's only 10 20 of them that, that really matter now there I are guess I a lot of uh, there, there are a lot of function names but um, really the, the important thing is to distinguish between the language you use to talk about code and the language in which you write code and just because somebody just because it's common to write code using uh, english language variable names uh, english language comments the language in which you're going to talk about code Sometimes in the comments, but but just in, let's say, a book about programming or talking with your colleagues in the same hallway who are programmers or or writing on the internet about code uh, is um, only going to be English for probably 50, 60% of the world's programmers.
3: Well, somebody wrote me, and there actually was a language, and I think it was a research project he did. It was based on Logo, but where all the keywords were, in fact, symbols. You guys familiar with that game, The Sims? APL. It's APL. <laughs> no, that's the name. The in, in The, the Sims, they are. have this completely made-up language called Simlish, which has oh. – it just sounds like gibberish. Uh-huh. And they actually uh, have s- – when you see it on the screen, it's just a bunch of – it's like wingdings. Somebody typing okay. in wingdings.
2: <laughs> it's like
3: crazy <laughs> symbols. And they actually make the game understandable <clears throat> for the most part in, in any language. So that would be like having a programming language that was symbolish, that was in- intentionally just symbols that had no meaning in any language. But
4: said, none of these words have any meaning. I mean, th- while – Well, it- it's, it's just one word. I mean, it is, it's
3: true that it does have its origin in English. Good.
4: But, I mean, l- Lambda uh, – A lot of these things are very, very
3: specific for. And some of them are kind of crappy. Like, I've always objected to some of the C-sharp terminology for for classes and stuff like that. I felt it was unclear.
4: Yeah, but they're not – I mean, it's not – the actual
3: keywords of the language
4: are too few, are are, are so few. I mean, a a human language that people speak, you need a vocabulary of – 5,000 to 10,000 words to start speaking a human language and to speak it you know, in, in, in a highly technical area that you're probably using a vocabulary of 100,000 words in your language. And so those 100,000 words that you need to have a reasonably detailed conversation about code is, uh, it totally dominates compared to the 20 keywords which happen
2: to be in English. Well, there's well, still I, I libraries to, to consider, too, right? I mean, yeah. just look at .NET. You well, know?
4: if you look at – now, here's the thing. Those libraries like, – Okay, so you got a function called create window. And so you're thinking, oh, gosh, i got to know English because create is a real thing and a window is an English word. And actually, if you then go pull down a Japanese language book teaching you about Windows programming, you'll see that they probably don't have a Japanese word for window. They probably switched to English for that word because that's technical jargon. But the conversation in which they say, you might want to call the Create Window API shortly after instantiating the first instance of your app.
2: You're going to see that all in Japanese except for the word Create Window. I think I've seen that, yeah, just browsing different sites. That's exactly what it – Just looks. I think from from my perspective, if I was reading and then saw a Japanese symbol for some function – bit of a learning curve on that's because you don't know thing, any but.
4: japanese but the, but but most japanese programmers know enough english to be able to deal with those occasional words that doesn't mean that they want to read a, about programming in english that i was talking to scott scott hanselman today he told me every single word of msdn is localized by professional translators into japanese not machine translation it's professionally localized every single article on msdn
2: Well, I think that, that shows there's definitely an audience for it. So yeah. that's surprising.
4: Yeah, and it's a large, I mean, I think that probably uh, uh, Japan probably has about 60% as many programmers as the US. That's just a rough estimate. And when you add, um, you know, when you add China, and Germany, and a few other countries, all the Spanish speaking countries, apparently Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese is a big deal. Scott told me. Uh, when, you know, when you add that together, it's an audience that's the same size, I think, as the English audience. And I don't know if I agree Jeff, I don't know if I agree with you that we just we should just just abdicate that. I mean, I understand that we got to have our priorities, but I don't see any reason why we should just say, "Oh, somebody else can do that." I mean, we're we're, you know, our goal is to uh is to you know, it, 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 to me it's it's it seems like a very it's okay to say English is 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 our first priority, um, but to say, "Oh, we would never want to do those other things" is just like sort of arbitrarily limiting our ambition. I mean, if Stack Overflow is a good thing, if well, it's a So, so previously you talked about eBay as an example. I mean, eBay is like a trezillion no, 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 dollars. No, no, wait, business. wait, stop. The only, I, 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 the only thing I said about eBay is I gave the example of eBay and Tradium in New Zealand because I wanted to point out that if we don't do those other languages soon enough, somebody else will come along and do them. And then if we ever wanted, and, 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 they, and they will get crit- critical mass. And I just but, gave eBay as an example of how there is no eBay in New Zealand.
2: Or like the oh, but, Google Yandex, or how, how do you pronounce that? The Russian Google? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's there's not a whole Google, bunch. There's
4: but... like Baidu, and there's Daum in South Korea. There's a whole bunch of these uh, lo- local things, and Google never really gets into those markets, never successfully got into those markets because uh, of, a, of, a, of another company that basically was a fast follower.
3: But I think sometimes the... the, the... The local version and the local language should be more successful because they're building it with that audience in mind. Sure. I mean, they have a better line on the audience than we would. And I, I would say that's the natural state of affairs. And when you're – the example of eBay was a bad one, I think, on many levels because, first of all, eBay is a huge business. It's like, oh, to have the problems of eBay. How terrible, right? <laughs> if we could be as big as eBay, that's, yeah. that's plenty. I mean, I don't need more than that, frankly. Well, where do, you, that. Where, where do you draw the line? How big? Well, how big? How big do you want to
4: get, and then just stop and just say, "Okay, we're not. We're not going to be any bigger than this. We've solved the problems of two million programmers. We don't need to solve the problems of three million programmers." Like, where do, well, you, where do you say? say where do you say our mission
3: the... ends now? Because I can't be bothered. Well, I don't like to think too far ahead because I think it's <laughs> distracting. Like, I think you've got to focus on what's happening in the next six months. If, like, six to eight weeks. Let's say six to eight weeks. <laughs> which is six <laughs> that's, months. That's yeah. the things you want to focus on. I and mean, you want to have a vague idea of where you're going. But, like, obsessing over it too much is just, I think, counterproductive. Like, it sort of distracts you from your primary mission, which is to move forward in the next, you know, in the okay. immediate
4: future. Let's move on. What else is in the uh, Stack Overflow uh, queue this week?
3: So, we also had our... Uh, uh, what, how should I call this, our penalty box implemented. And I know you and Michael don't like the way that we did it. Uh, yeah, we, we haven't talked about that at all on the podcast, have we? We talked about it a tiny bit a long time ago. Tell me about the penalty box. So, Let's argue so about the, the, it now. So <laughs> the way the penalty box works is if, if you're doing something that we think is harmful to the community yeah. for long enough, and this is a long period to be clear, I mean, you have to get warnings, and it's not something we do just at the drop of a hat. But if you feel like you're doing something sort of actively harmful to the community, then we'll put you in, in, in a time suspension mode, which means your account is locked at one reputation and you can't do anything on the site. And do you ever get your reputation back? Yeah, at the end of it, it
4: comes uh, back. Okay. So I'm you just know, wondering why a, you don't just abandon your account in that case. Use a different account. And then
3: no, you carry don't. on and with I, your same bad behavior. I was surprised account. that. You and Michael were very gung ho about this uh, this hellban concept, where hellban is the user is able to do all the normal things, but they just can't tell that nobody else can see what they're doing.
2: Well, tell, give me an I, example I of. Like that. I, sorry, Alex, say that again. Oh, I was saying that that's a pretty cool uh, that's a pretty cool idea. I think it that's is a... cool in theory, but I think it's a little bit too much like
3: the, sort of the, the guys in black masks. Coming and just taking you away in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes, it really, really is. Exactly. If you really think about the system, you like like smash and drop, If you think about the system of justice of the set. that's being promoted there, it's really kind of scary because <laughs> it's just like you know, all of a sudden Joe just disappears. Well, let's talk. Really we're wrote. talking in
4: the abstract about bad behavior. Let's talk in the concrete about some. Give me some specific examples of bad behavior that we've seen that you're you're thinking of because I think what may be happening is that Michael uh, and I have a particular type of bad behavior in mind for example a particular type of bad behavior might be I wrote a script which spams advertisements on every stack overflow topic I can find right and people have these scripts and all they're gonna do is they're gonna add the stack URL and all of a sudden you're just gonna start getting spam on every single. and they may have made an account or they may not have made an account so the the if somebody has a script which is spamming mechanically advertisements or Nigerian spam or links to try to increase their Google page rank onto Stack Overflow topics all over the place. This is not a person that you negotiate with and you say, please stop behaving badly and stop for a couple of days. This is a person that you want to block. But when you go to block them, they're a programmer writing a script. And so they'll notice that their script isn't working and they'll try to fix it so that it does work. And so my approach is if there's somebody spamming, Make sure that it looks to them like it's working because then, as a programmer, they will stop trying to spam you because they will think that the spamming is working. And you've solved the problem, and you haven't taken it to the next level where they try to figure out how to work around whatever you've done to block their spamming.
3: Yeah, I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding about the audience that we were addressing with this solution. And I think the actual answer is that we we've dealt with spammers for a long time essentially people who have no investment in the site and just yeah. attack it because that's what they do right uh, this was really to address people that actually are active stack overflow users that really like the site mm-hmm. and and really engage with it but are doing things that ultimately kind of hurt the site in the bigger picture what are some uh, what are some cases of that or examples well the specific case that was kind of a problem was was editing and and we love editing to be clear and i had to write a whole blog post about that because people thought that you know, oh, now you don't approve of editing. Um, but we totally approve of editing. It's just you have to edit in the right spirit, you know. When you're editing someone's post, I mean, it's still, unlike Wikipedia, it still has their name attached to it, right? So you have to be a little circumspect in, in how you edit because, A, you don't want to fight with the person that you're, your content you're editing, A. And then, B, you know, you you, you don't want to sort of make them look bad by your edits. So I think... It was just a general tone of editing that, mm-hmm. that a lot of people in the community objected to. It was a lot of really trivial edit, edits that like didn't, really, didn't really improve the post necessarily as substantively as it should. Like, like what's an example of a trivial? what you consider a trivial edit? Well, you, you start getting into edit wars where, you know, should this be capitalized, should this not be capitalized? And then you'll have 20 revisions where of one guy capitalizes, really? a real the example? other guy takes away the capital. Oh, it gets really, really trivial. That's the problem. And that was essentially my main piece of advice. Don't really make trivial, yeah. trivial edits unless you have other edits to make in the post. Because the trivial edits tend to, tend to have a lot of friction around them when you make really That's tiny I, edits. I, I would
4: think most people, like, like, I've done a lot of editing where it's just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to improve your grammar. I'm going to capitalize the first letter of your sentences.
3: Right, but usually there's a bunch of that. I mean, yeah. usually you're rescuing a post where yeah. somebody who's written it has just not put any effort into formatting at all. Yeah, where they don't know English so well. And, and And that was sort of my other point around editing was like, save your editing for the posts that really, really need it. I mean, yeah, sure, if one word is misspelled in the middle, sure, but that's not really a super high priority sometimes the you priority know already yeah, fixing the stuff that's really broken. My favorite so. posts
4: sometimes are the ones where somebody's asking a really, really, really newbie question, like what does plus equal do in c that and you just want those are the ones that you really want to fix up the title so that Google's going to find it. Fix up the question so that it's as clear as possible, fix up the answer right. so that it's just beautiful. Because these are the questions where we get the most hits and where we're going to solve the most, you know, where we're going to help the most people. The very, very narrow, very, very specific, very, very difficult questions are going to get 300 page views in their entire, you know, in the next five years. And, you know, they're useful for those 300 people, but like the real basic questions are the ones where some poor slob who's just trying to figure out a programming language in the very beginning and is typing. Very simple, very basic questions into google that 's where we really have the opportunity to help you know ten thousand twenty thousand people with an answer and those are the ones I want to edit and sometimes somebody writes a question that 's very specific to their problem, like they say, "I wrote this code, and it doesn 't work why doesn 't it work and you want to edit it so that it 's going to be useful you know more more general, like like what is my misunderstanding here You want to edit it so that maybe the the title and the the question are are, are going to be more useful to other people, not just you having your bug and, and will help you debug your problem.
3: No, I totally agree with that. And I think that's where you want to spend the majority of your editing effort. If you're going to yeah. spend a lot of time editing on the site, use it on these posts that desperately, desperately need editing help. And there's tons of them, right? There's no shortage of any editing for anyone to do. And then I think the other conclusion I reached, I actually had a phone call with Stack Overflow user uh, Gortok or George, and we talked about this, and I, I realized part of the problem is the spirit in which you do things mm-hmm. is as important as what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I know that's really kind of touchy-feely, but, it sure but it's is. really true. Yeah. Uh, in other words, you can follow the rules and end up just totally pissing off tons of people. But I'm following the rules. You know, I'm doing exactly what the rules say that we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But the way in which you do them turns off so many people, it ends up being a net negative. There's a, the trouble is that that's a mindset that makes you a good programmer. Sometimes, but, but I think... That kind of
4: literal-minded, the letter-of-the-law kind of mindset is extremely important. It's a mindset you have to be in to be programming, and so it's very hard for people to switch from trying to get their compiler, which is going to be utterly literal, yes. to respond. No, that's true. To trying to get humans, who are human, to, 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 to respond.
3: Right, yeah. right. So, so I wanted this to be out in the open. So that's we came up with the time suspension... And I wanted it to be something we could all discuss and see. And I didn't want to be like the guys who come in the night and take somebody away. I thought that would be very toxic. Okay, to I didn't understand comedian. that
4: you were going to give them their points back. And I also didn't understand that. they like, I, like, my, my, What I was thinking is you were just saying, um, hey, we're going to ban you. And then the, the, or we're going to tell you that you're in penalty box mode. And then you're going to be like, all right, well, you know, who cares? F you. I'm going to just make a new account with a different name and continue my damage from that account.
2: Naturally, right. well, it's it, it sounds like these are almost like the obnoxious friend who just needs that reminder. You know, they're they're in it yeah. for the right reason, but just doing the wrong things. Yeah, and
3: I think that's a great way to describe it, Alex. Because really, you know, these are users who have really done great things on Stack Overflow. It just they need some adjustment, right? Because <laughs> they're <laughs> they just have to be adjustments for the community. You know, it, I, really, I, I got so it's like parenting. I mean, Jeff D'Alges and I were talking. He's like, this is just like having a kid. You know? <laughs> it really kind of is. It's like parenting.
2: Yeah,
3: You want to get I, I, to do the right things.
2: For yeah, I was going to say, I, I see the same thing. And I, I wonder if it's just a it, – is it programmers in general or is it just, you know, you get enough people and eventually you'll find the user who is, you know, wants to help out the site. But, uh, you know, kind of goes in the wrong direction of doing it. I think the latter, I think it's, you know, it's,
3: it's rare, but it does happen. And and the way you deal with it sets the tone, right? Like if you don't deal with it, that's as bad as like having lots of these users. You know, when, when I first moved to
4: uh, New York, I'm walking down the street and I was really like a a full-time programmer in those days. I mean, I just coded all day long. I'm walking down the street and a, a taxi comes careening through a red light nearly runs me over. And I'm like, what the hell This taxi nearly ran me over. And I start chasing it and banging on the taxi with my hand and start screaming at the taxi driver. And I realized that what was happening is I was having this mindset of I saw a bug with the world and I want to fix it. Like the taxi driver tried to run me over. I'm going to yell at him so he doesn't do that anymore. But there are millions of taxi drivers in New York. And you know what? The entire population of taxi drivers in New York are all immigrants and they turn over every three weeks on average. So there is no way. I'm going to educate all 14,000 or whatever, 28,000 legally licensed taxi drivers in New York not to try to run me over as if they could care less because I banged on their taxi with my hand. And what I realized was this was more something about me that when you're coding all day long, you are fighting an avalanche of code not doing what it's supposed to do either because you haven't written it or because the first time you write it, it's buggy, and the next 17 times it still has bugs, and eventually you get it a little bit closer. And you're just basically like sweeping back the sea with a stick, beating back the sea with a stick. What's that expression? You're, just, you're, you're fighting this constant avalanche of the world is wrong and I need to make it better, and then you get out in the actual world as a human being, and it's hard to change that mindset. It's hard to forget that you're, that you're not responsible for improving the traffic situation in Manhattan and the safety of pedestrians. It's not, you can't do, you can't do that. You can, you know, you make, make a whole job doing that. You can try to admonish a couple of taxi drivers once in a while. But if you try to do that in your interpersonal relationships in real life, if you try to behave the way you behave as a programmer doing his or her job, if you try to behave that way with your family and your friends, uh, it's highly inappropriate. You have to be, you know, a lot more tolerant. You know, you can't, you can't debug every problem in, in the real world. At some point, you just have to stop and say, okay.
3: Right, let it on. go. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the key thing. And I think a lot of these edit wars are people that just can't let it go. Because you know, they are... Like, this must be capitalized. And it's
4: very much a programming mindset, I think. And it's unfortunately necessary because compilers are unusually literal-minded compared to, say, humans. And, uh, and computers just do exactly what you tell them and therefore you have to be extremely strict in what you emit. You have to do the exact right thing or they're not not going to respond. And, and when they have bugs, you have to fix every single one of them because who knows you know, what's going to be a security bug and what's going to be. And, uh, and so that's why I think that programmers do this a lot.
2: So I wonder if the programmer, the type of person who will write his own compiler or take the compiler and fix the compiler <laughs> will be more personable because now they're not fixing their code. They're adjusting their compiler expectations. Um, but their compiler is code, so.
4: <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> the, but but think about Alex. Think about like what if it was? Um, th- there are things that you use on a computer that are that are software. Like maybe maybe you have a spam filter that's a Bayesian spam filter. So you're training it on spam. You're saying this is spam, this is not spam, and then you get an email from a senator that you once sent a letter to eight years ago, telling him that you want him to protect the whales, and uh, you get an email from him asking to you to reelect him, and you have to decide whether this is spam or not, and. You can't really decide, and eventually you just say, "Ah, let it go, whatever," because it's a Bayesian filter. You know what I mean? You're not you're not working with it. Should this should should he be on my regular expression to match it? It's more like sort of that soft training of of spam. So there are things that you do on computers and things like interactions with other people through computers where you use a more soft human kind of approach. But in terms of like actually writing code, it's it's a hundred percent like ridiculously literal-mindedness. literal, mind, literal mindedness.
3: Well, I think the interesting discussion there is is what happens when what we're basically describing is letting the most obsessed person win, which is kind of what you have to do in the real world. Because the people that are really obsessed, that are really yeah. invested, it's just like on Wikipedia, right? It's the same thing. The people who are obsessive about Elvis are going to own the Elvis topic. And there's yeah. nothing you can do. <laughs> you don't have enough hours in the day to write scripts to beat them. You're not going to win. Right. But what what happens... And I, I agree, this is generally correct. I don't actually have a problem with this, but I'm saying, what happens when the most obsessed person wins on every topic?
4: Um, that I may mean, be okay. It, it's a I mean, weird. they may be the person that cares the most because they know the most. You know, like I, I don't think as a general rule that's necessarily going to get the wrong outcome. If the I agree, it's not necessarily wrong,
3: but I think there's some maybe they care the, most stuff the they, edges.
4: I mean, weird. maybe they care the most because they know something that the other people just don't seem to be recognizing whatever it may be. They may be like, look, I'm sorry, you're just doing this Is a security bug the way you're describing this and you have to not do it this way. And um, that doesn't seem like something you would get into a debate over and I'm certainly not talking about capitalization here.
3: but uh, Right. Well, Wikipedia is, uh, it has to work because otherwise if it didn't work, Wikipedia totally would be busted all the time. So letting the most obsessed person win is what Wikipedia is. I guess so, yeah. It really is. Well, they um, they,
4: they have to, they eventually they close down highly controversial subjects. They lock people out and stuff.
3: Well, and we do the same thing, right? Like if we see there's a big edit war, then we'll lock. And we actually need to write code to automatically lock things where that's happening. Hmm. Um, But yeah, there's some intervention that happens. So one thing that came out of this whole uh, sort of timed uh, suspension mechanism is we actually improved our flagging capability to make it more in line with actually Craigslist, the way Craigslist does flagging. Where you provide a reason that you're flagging something. That's right. And we also have a reason for spam because we decided for spam we might eventually want to... Do some Bayesian stuff or, you know, blacklist URLs or something. So we actually want to know when something's spam versus just offensive. Uh, so we added another criteria there. So you can right now you can say offensive, spam, and then inform moderator. And if you do inform moderator, you can actually send us a little message explaining for what you think is wrong here. Mm-hmm. And we'll now take a is look there, at
2: Now, is there a lot of spam that that uh, can, I mean, obviously, most of us won't see it. But, I mean, does a lot of spam come through?
3: No, there's actually one post. I don't know what happened, because we have a bunch of spam mechanisms. To get spam on the site, you definitely have to be a human. Um, And we have had at least one incident where somebody just, for kicks, decided to solve our CAPTCHA over and over and post a bunch of really stupid stuff. So that has happened and can happen. But there's one particular post. I don't know what it is about this post. The, The World of Warcraft gold farmers found this post, and it has nothing to do with World of Warcraft. It's just a completely random post. And all of a sudden there was like literally dozens of like, wow, gold, get all your gold. Like, <laughs> I don't you know, know like, why they're so obsessed with this I, post. I had to like close the post because it was that one post. It was like a spam magnet. I don't know what happened there.
2: I, I see the same thing on uh, on WTF and and you know tried hundred different things. I am convinced that it is a person, you know, some who knows where going and, and posting these things. We it's, we actually, oh, no,
3: it's definitely a person. We
4: see Without people, but I've, I've I've also seen scripts that do this. You know what? A lot of times, there there are scripts that just do Google searches <laughs> to find the high page rank sites. And they go to those PageRank sites, and they look for forms, and they fill uh. out the forms with some spam and, they're ho- and, a, and a hyperlink back to them. And they're hoping that some PageRank will, will, will flow through that. Which may or may not. You may have rel equals nofollow so that the page rank doesn't flow th- throw through. But it doesn't matter because they're spammers. They're going to do this to a million, million sites with high page rank in hopes that... So a lot of times, there are people that have these little businesses where they're like, we will boost your page rank. And what they're doing is they're running these scripts that they've written that go and find high page rank sites that have forms on them and just fill them out randomly. And they don't care what the form is. So they, they may send an email. They may... and some it can be a tiny percentage of those forms result in something that is posted then on a page that is high page rank and doesn't have rel equals nofollow and some of the page rank will flow through Google from that. And that's their, that's, that's their mission. And a lot of times, this is, uh, this is done by fully automated scripts that are just spewing all over the universe. And sometimes what you'll see in discussions on blogs, and I suspect, Jeff, and Stack Overflow, is that a particular topic may have gotten linked to by somebody with high page rank. So some pages may just happen to have slightly higher page rank than other pages. And mm-hmm. that's why they become the first magnet for spam, although the other ones will eventually get it too. But they may be First, because they this this topic just happens to have been linked to from some other blogger somewhere, and therefore it has a page rank of three instead of two or whatever.
3: Right? No, I t- that makes sense. I, I, one caveat: I do think it's it has to be humans. We have enough protection from bots, including recapture. That there's just no way. This could be a script, but Well, that no, makes I, sense. I think
4: actually ca- ca- for, the, for the people that are doing this, CAPTCHA is a standard part of their toolkit, and that may mean that they've hired people at low wages yes. to, to do it. To or a lot of the CAPTCHAs in the world are, are, are broken, uh, you know, and I'm sure that the, Some. the spammers know what the hacks are and which ones are broken before the White Hats know which ones are broken. So you, you may be using a CAPTCHA that's generally assumed to be good, and they just have a script for it. Or they, right. or like you say, if they're gold farmers, they probably have a bunch of gold farm people that can sit there and type in these captchas <laughs> all day long. It's not, it's not very hard. Uh, they'll, or they'll exactly. set up a porn site with captcha, and you know, and, and then they'll get all people all over the world to to, to solve captchas f- for them in exchange for looking at porn pictures.
3: That's actually very quite. Uh, uh, well, that's that's pretty clever. Quite the hack. Wow. I think that's more of a theoretical thing than an actual thing. People love to bring that example up, but I'm just not convinced that
0: well, it's actual reality like I think there are people uh, who
3: are paid to solve CAPTCHAs. I don't think that the porn method is necessarily. It, it, it's exciting to talk about, but I don't think it's really practical. It's happened. Uh, yeah, I think it's more of a theoretical thing. All but right. there are certainly people that are solving CAPTCHAs just using human farms, absolutely sure. mechanical. Because it's, like it's like
4: Keep a, a thousands of a cent, you know?
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to take Plus a it's listener? It's fun question? to solve captions. Who doesn't love to solve captions? It's fun. Yeah, sit there all day long. We can make little video games where you type in <laughs> words. <laughs> it's called Typing Tutor. So, Alex, I think you had some Stack Overflow posts that you want to talk about.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, actually, I was uh, browsing the questions and came across um, a couple interesting ones. And let's see, I'm going to try to. Uh uh, pull this one up here. Okay, so it is database wide unique yet simple identifiers in SQL Server. Give us the number <clears> and <in throat> the URL. What's the number? It is 721497. Got it. So it's it's a pretty common problem, and this is this is one that I've just encountered time and time again. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, in any organ, you know, this is business program, uh, business programming, undoubtedly.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh, you'll have a situation where you know the unique identifiers that you apply to a loan or you know uh, some document, something. People write these on post-it notes, they hand them around, which is why very bad idea to use GUIDs for identifiers you're going to show people because that never works. You can't hand somebody a GUID on paper. Just because it's too Um, long. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if if you've been in these departments where, you know, your software is now uh, being used by 100 people in in cubicles on a floor, you know, that's what they do. They write these numbers down. Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy that we might, well, just like the question ID. You know, (laughs) So if you had used GUIDs, I couldn't have given you that number, right? So, you know, the problem that that this question is specifically referring to is, you know, obviously you guys only have one ID, and that's the question ID. Um, but what happens if there were question IDs, user IDs, topic IDs? Um, again, bad example for uh, for for the site here, but um, in in the business world, there's that happens all the time. You know, as an yeah, account ID, ID, order ID, right, right, right. So what I thought was interesting is there were a lot of unique solutions kind of um, answered here, but one that you know, I've seen in, in a lot of systems and one that, that we've implemented time and time again, just go with different lengths. So you know, you, you can be pretty certain that you're not going to have more than 999 customers, again, depends on your business domain. Yeah. Um, I but: do. <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. Oh. <laughs> if you build skyscrapers. Probably not, you know. Okay. Um, so you figure out you figure out what your max lengths are, and then you can consistently have four-digit customer ID, six-digit loan number, eight-digit uh, whatever number, and that seems to work out pretty well because the users will come to recognize one identifier versus another.
4: Mm-hmm. So you're talking about having s- different types of ID, but like let's say you want to separate the customer ID from the account number, from the order, the specific order number, from the invoice number, from the purchase order number, from the...
2: That kind of stuff. And you want to make sure that when you hear that number, you know which it is. Absolutely, yeah. Or, well, and so you have a unique identifier that's just, uh, it's really database unique for kind of the big business objects, you know, customers. The classic example that 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 we always kind of fall back on is you know the customer ID. You're always going to have, um, depending on your orders, have your customer ID be four digits, let's say. Uh, order be two digits, and you know you can have your order number first four digits of the order number are now the customer ID. So it, it really helps uh, the users when they're passing around these post-it notes, talking about them, really understand what's uh, what that identifier is made up of. Right. Um, if you guys Heard of the smart key concept? No. What's a smart key? So the smart key, it's, it's, uh, you know, for... Cases like this. Let's go with an order number, for example. Uh, a lot of developers will just default to a auto incrementing ID, which is fine. Um, but if you can put a little more intelligence than in that, let's say you want a seven digit order number. Mm-hmm. Well, you can stack in uh, one digit is the year, three digits is the day of year. Um, <laughs> You know, kind yeah, of yeah. go that route, so there 's a little bit of intelligence. you see about. this a lot. You see
4: like the invoice number two thousand and nine oh four seventeen six but um, but you have to think about in a lot of these cases, you have to think about a bunch of things. one is is it important that uh, outside outsiders not be able to uh, guess somebody else 's say customer id number like does does it have to be security associated with these things in a way where nobody can kind of guess them? And uh, if that's the case, one thing that I've done commonly which works is adding a few letters at the end as a password. So you've uniquely generated you know, a three-letter password at the end. And then everybody internally uses tools where they don't need; they can just ignore those letters. They just type in the number. Everybody externally has to type in those letters, and they get looked up in the database to make sure that you got the right ones. So you generate maybe three random letters uh, and, and tag them on the, the bottom to make sure that nobody can kind of guess what another one is without, you know, massive frontal assault. So uh, that's, that's one thing I've done. There's the other situation where you don't want your customers to know how many customers you have. And so you need to sort of somehow obfuscate the, the you know, if, 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 I, if I order something from Amazon and I see that my order number is 37 and then three days later, <laughs> I order something else, and my order number is 38,
2: and <laughs> I learned something about how, how much. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I was banking with ING. I was doing some online banking with ING Direct. Yeah. Had a confirmation number of 27. <laughs> I don't know how it's that a little happened, bit, really, uh, yeah. He makes it 27. Yeah, that right. was a
4: confirmation number. <laughs> they must reuse them pretty pretty frequently. I'm like, are, are you are all done now? Because I need to reuse this confirmation number. <laughs> we only got two digits. <laughs> <laughs> There's another thing I do a lot, which is... Uh, um, my favorite thing is to stick a Q in front of a number uh, when you want to make sure that somebody's – when you want to make sure that, first of all, you can search for these things because hardly any words start with Q. If Q in a digit is just sort of unheard of. And so it makes all kinds of like full-text searches work real well. And uh, also when you tell your customer, you know, do you have your order ID number, it starts with Q like you tell them that on the phone, then they can look at the page that has all kinds of numbers on it and look for the one that starts with a Q and makes it easy for them to find because Qs are not so common. Um, what else What else have uh, What else have I done there? Um, you should definitely have at least a checksum. If the number is going to be longer than two digits, which it is, then I think it always makes sense to add at least, you know, go ahead and take an extra digit to do uh, a CRC, uh, like a checksum, like a credit card does, just to make sure that, uh, numbers haven't been transposed and a number hasn't been dropped.
2: That's and that's sometimes good you don't even need a full digit for that. You know, you can use the last. Uh, well, you know, if you want to overload that, you can. You know, there's a lot of data that you can kind of stuff into those bytes. But that's, <laughs> I don't know. I think that might be getting a little, you know, obsessive if you're trying to uh, stuff a lot of data into your into your characters. But you know. What is that uh, rule in psychology with uh, you can remember seven numbers or five to seven? Is, is yes, that average? Plus or minus two. So, yeah, yep. yeah. So, that's, I mean, that's the ideal length for your
4: identifier. So, if well, you're yeah, on. Yeah, that, yeah. If you uh, can't do that, you just have to group it. You're like, you group it into blocks of three. Like, we have, uh, we have uh, co-pilot, I, copilot invitation, excuse me, Copilot invite codes. And when we did the Copilot invite codes, we wanted them to be really short, but we needed them to be highly secure because this, this actually became a password. Uh, to get onto somebody 's machine, and um, eventually we settled on a twelve digit uh, numeric code, which in order to help people um, say it over the phone, we always print in four groups of three digits so that people learn to say it as three digits at a time, which just makes it easier to to say over the phone but I had actually uh, before we did this i had actually I, I, I was thinking if we used letters instead of numbers, we could make it shorter and have more variation because there are lots of letters. Um, and then the first thing I started doing is uh, trying to eliminate pairs of numbers that sound the same over a telephone, because this is a number that we knew that a lot of people would be reading over the telephone. And so you can't have both uh, M as in Mike and N as in November, because it's almost impossible to hear the difference between those over the phone. And similarly, you can't have um, B-Bravo and P-Papa. Uh, those will be confused by a lot of people. And the, anyway, by the time I had found all those things that would be confused um, the letter O and the digit zero, the letter L and the digit one, and all those things could be confused. And all the letters which sound alike over the phone I was left with like 13 letters
2: that you could use total.
4: <laughs> it was, just wasn't worth it. I figured to just go for the numbers.
2: Another another consideration that I've seen um, it, that became an issue in one place was kind of uh, you know watching out for uh, having six 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 in your in your number somewhere. Oh, yeah, Who wants to be that. customer six six six? Why
4: would find it'd be it's kind not of fun just that, our, putting a thirteen in there or putting eights in there if you're, uh, if you're uh, Chinese or fours or which of the one yeah. of them is good and one of them is bad? Eights or fours? Fours are fours are bad and eights are good. I might have gotten it backwards.
2: I could see that. I could see
4: that. Um, I have no idea, I'm guessing. <laughs> there, here's another thing. sense. Here's another thing that AOL used to do on those uh, disks when the AOL sent everybody floppy disks to sign up for um, free accounts or something. If you take uh, common English words and you have two of them, that gets you an enormous number of, poss- of, of combinations, an absolutely enormous number of combinations. If you take the 50,000 most common English words or even the 20,000 most common English words that almost anybody can spell, and you just make a two or three word phrase. Uh, you you get as, as much combination probably as like a you know like a seven digit number. So, yeah, I I can put, what was that for the? uh oh no, they, they for just printed free it trial on little discs. Yeah, for your thirty day free trial. It was yeah. just a way to give you a password that would be easy to type, easy to remember, easy to everything without having to give you some kind of like compare it for example to the serial number that Microsoft gives you for. For activating your Windows or your office license, where it's 25 uh, digits, each of which can be any letter.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder how many more combinations Microsoft can get. Or, well, at least, you know, they're embedding data into that key, aren't they, as far as the version, the features, and those sort Probably, of things? Probably,
4: but you almost never have to. I mean, why can't it just be looked up in a database somewhere?
2: Well, that makes sense, yeah. Well, I yeah. guess Internet access. Uh, so, you know, all those people no, those installing Windows offline. who don't have internet access. Uh, they, can't,
4: they can't activate it offline. They need a. Oh, yeah, you, uh, uh, a you phone call, call the number. Yeah, and then you've got to sit there and read letters to the,
2: to the machine. Yeah, I've done that. So,
3: so we should get to the uh, question you had, Joel, the submitted question.
2: The listener question? Yes, please.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, so we have a listener question from Andy Bryce. This is Andy Bryce from the UK and my question for the combined wisdom of Jeff and Joel is regarding the market for downloadable software applications over the next 5 to 10 years how do you see the situation playing out the web only scenario where downloadable apps are completely squeezed out by web apps and we'll all be running Photoshop and Visual Studio inside a browser the hybrid scenario where downloadable apps converge with web apps so the distinction between the two becomes increasingly arbitrary the business as usual scenario where downloadable apps remain as important as they've always been or something else completely. Thanks. Is he asking us to predict the future?
3: Yes. So what we're trying to think is like five years from now, how will you typically
2: get software on your PC? Yeah. I, I, I cannot see everything going web-based. Um, really? I mean, a lot. Well, I'll tell you what. I started on my taxes last night. First went with uh, TurboTax Online. Yeah, I've been using first that time. for three years now. Have you? I, I don't know what it was. I really liked uh, the, the feature set of the disk version, the download, a lot, uh, lot greater than the web version. It's exactly it the just... same. They have a big, gigantic XML
4: file that describes all the tax forms, and then they just run it through the web. Or on the Even the download version, for years, has just been a big old IE control
2: I think Think, you know what? There's a few features that were, that were missing that, that I noticed that just really? drove me nuts. I couldn't oh, view the 1040 Oh Yeah, they don't have all
4: those view forms. That's right. You can't just go view a form.
2: That's what, You're right. that's what drove me nuts, yeah. You're right. You're right. You can, you can uh, I don't know, at the end you can print them. You can print them, but you just can't go edit them. It's just, you know. You're right. I could, yeah, and, you know, there were a few other things, and I don't know what it was about the web. Every time you clicked it, it had that updating, and it 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 was only at like a tenth of a second or a little more than that. But I think the desktop experience, even though it might have been an IE control, however they have it set up, yeah. desktop experience, I say, much better.
4: Okay. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are definitely going to be a lot of cases uh, of that. I mean, uh, here's here's an app that... I don't think I'm going to use a web based version for a long time. Audacity, which I use for editing the audio of the show. It's just I can't even imagine a web based trying to do good e-
2: edit, fluent editing of, of video or audio using a web I suspect it'll be a hybrid. I mean, I could see somebody putting Audacity in a, I yeah. don't know, some control in a web browser. Well, what's right? uh, like, Is where, that does, where, does,
4: where does Steam come into all this?
2: Well, I think that it's really. A, a
3: blending of the two. I don't think there's really <laughs> – right. talking about everything running in the browser is sort of a misnomer. It's really, right. it's really a question of, like, how do you get software? And one thing that you're not going to do anymore, clearly, we're already not doing – you're not going to drive to Best Buy no. and buy a copy of software, Go and on. that clearly is going to die, and it already should be dead, frankly. I mean, it's if, it's if for all it intents and
4: purposes, dead, yeah. Yeah. You're think about, get there used all to be a software. store, Egghead. They just, they just sold software. There's a store where they had boxes with software. You went in and you purchased the software. They still have that. It's just not Egghead.
3: Egghead. They're still well, around? I mean, no, no, no. Not Egghead. But I mean, if you go to Best oh. Buy, there's tons of PC software on the shelves. Not tons. Isn't there's it mostly like games? Oh, there's tons. At Best Buy? Hmm. Tons, dude. There's like two aisles. What do you call?: oh, oh, one full aisle on both sides.
2: I've been there. Well, two, two, two isn't the, that great. I mean, remember, Egghead thing. was like a whole store filled with that i mean i remember it was yeah it was more of a boutique though it was more of a
3: boutique experience true true whatever i mean we're talking like packed aisles but anyway that's what i think is going to die so then the question is not so much does it run in the browser or does it not run in the browser i think it's kind of a red herring i think the real question is how quickly and how effectively can you get software on the user's machine through whatever mechanism and I think yeah. it's still going to be a blend. I think even five years out, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that's done in the browser. But I think there's going to be a lot of software you just pull down and run. Uh, if somebody could deliver like – and Steam is kind of like you know the app store for the iPhone yeah. on the PC. That's the cool thing about Steam, right? Hmm. It makes it really easy to buy stuff. The friction level goes way down. I don't have to go to you know monkeysoftware.com, go through their weird checkout process and buy whatever it is they're selling me for software. And then worry about where the bits experience. are. Yeah. Yeah, you have a unified experience where like okay, there's this huge menu. I just click and wow, I can just buy this and it keeps track of everything and it automatically downloads everything and it makes it very painless mm-hmm. to get software. So I think Steam is kind of the future and I think those guys are way ahead of the game in terms of how software's going to come on the PC and the Mac eventually.
2: So So who do you see owning the Steam for applications? Microsoft uh Oh, I don't know who else might take ownership of such a you know overarching thing. Everything from TurboTax to oh, I don't know, whatever. Um, I don't think obviously. there will
4: be. Uh, I mean, I think what you're implying is that there's a middleman, and I think that we're that model is over. We're going to go direct. If you want TurboTax, you're going to go to Intuit. If you want you know Valve games, you're going to go to Steam. If you want, and there's no reason for these. Oh wait, wait, wait! Steam is way better.
3: more than Valve, though.
4: Steam yeah, has yeah, yeah. Tons no, no, I know. But of... What I'm saying is that, but isn't Steam
3: owned by Valve? It is, but the the catalog is huge now. They have a lot, yeah, they have a and, lot. They're, and they're
4: all smaller companies that just want to get in on. Yeah, this. they're
3: basically outsourcing that stuff. So yeah. yeah, if you're a giant company, if you're a Microsoft, you know, hell no, you're not going to go to Valve and say, "Oh, please distribute our software, kind sir." Yeah, you're going to say, "Screw you," and do it yourself. I guess but you're right. For, I think a, there's a huge number of. It's the same reason you would use PayPal and not reinvent PayPal, right? Right. You're just getting infrastructure. It's not just that. I, it's, the, it's like the App Store on the iPhone. Just the fact that there is a
4: single store. Makes it such a better yes. experience that it's worth it to people to be in that store than yes. to try to make a Nokia S, you know, Symbian S60 app and put it on your own website where nobody's ever going to find it.
3: Exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying, and I think that's where the improvement needs to come on the software side. Mm-hmm. So, ah, how come Microsoft hasn't done an, a, a Windows oh, app they have, store on dude. Windows? You just don't know about it because they I have, have the
2: Windows app- Catalog, yeah. right?
3: Yeah, Windows Marketplace. It's not good. No. Must not be. Um, I mean, just the overall experience is not optimal in terms of. It's hard to explain. I I have friends that actually worked on this, so I don't want to say too things too negative <laughs> about it. Um, but it's it's traditional Microsoft, and that they didn't really think enough about the problem. Right. In terms of making it easy to do the right things.
4: It's so. not just that. It's you also have to have for something like that. You really have to have compelling content on there. Like the cool people will buy no matter how screwed up the store is. Well, if you want to get wait, let me stop, you, and that's let me stop you right there.
3: there ask yourself this why doesn't Microsoft mm-hmm. let me download Vista for a long time they actually do have a way of doing this now yeah right? like why can't I just download Vista say yeah, I want to install Vista click and they just download and install it okay so I actually why? know the answer to this
4: the answer yeah. to this is that they for years and years and years they built up a channel of, of distributors and resellers and retailers and people that would handle these physical products and those people still sell a lot of product And... Therefore, well, they be- have a lot of leverage over Microsoft. And whenever Microsoft tries to go direct to the consumers and bypass these people, these retailers and distributors and so forth shout bloody murder, and they say, we're cutting you off. We're going to make it so that you cannot get Vista in Best Buy. Because when you buy Vista in Best Buy, that Vista didn't get the Best Buy from Microsoft. It got there through Ingram Micro, which is a distributor, or one of, or, or one of the other big distributors. And so there's a lot of people making money off of that copy of Vista that's in Best Buy. And all of these people threaten Microsoft every time Microsoft tries to go direct, and it's just a matter of who has the most clout, and as long as Microsoft is still making a lot of money off of this channel, they can't afford to offend the channel partners. Right.
3: So so two observations. One, Microsoft does, in fact, sell Vista. They don't yeah, well, that's
4: because eventually these people lot. have lost. Eventually, eventually the retailers are just not important enough, and the distributors are just not important enough, and they're just going to lose.
3: Yeah, and then the second point is that Steam struggles with this all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. some of these blockbuster games that come out, I mean, they have a huge retail channel. And yeah. a lot of times with the digital distribution, like, you can't get the digital version until the, the day the physical version is available. Right. You're basically handicapped for no good reason. Right. And they charge the same exact price. And you know they're making a killing on digital distribution because yeah. it's the same physical same. price. Yeah. No trucks have to drive it anywhere. No stores yeah. have to be stocked. So you kind of get ripped off. And you can see why that is because they don't want to piss off. The retail channel. Think so about short- just
4: uh, if you go to these, the, what's that Sony store that they have in San Francisco? The Metri, oh gosh, Metronome. Metronome. gosh, Metreon. Metreon. Yes. And there'll be like a Sony store there where everything costs twice as much as it should because it's being sold <laughs> for the official manufacturer's recommended price. And they have no choice because they're Sony and they do not want to piss off their distributors. And because Sony makes physical goods, they, have, they, they, they can't do that. And so they, if they make a store, they're going to get, nailed by their distributors unless they charge full retail price, which is why nobody ever buys anything in those stores except for stupid tourists
3: who don't know any better. <laughs> right. Right. Well we should probably stop there. We don't want to go too much okay
4: longer. Did we do let's see, we did a did we we did a question from the site. We did a listener question. That's I guess uh we've covered our minimum number of uh things
3: that we need to do. Hopefully we've got enough bingo topics this time so people playing along with bingo are winning. <laughs> Uh, what, are, what are some of the bingo topics? Oh, Saying geez. actually, talking about C. What's the phone number? What's the <laughs> Saying phone number? the word raid. Yes, <laughs> the phone number. You've got to forget the phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm
4: looking for the phone number. Hey, uh, Alex, thanks a lot for coming on, coming on with us and being a guest. It's
2: been a lot of fun.
4: Where can, appreciate- uh, where can people find you? The dailywtf.com?
2: Yeah, that's the best place. And, you know, if they want to uh, contact me, it's pretty easy to find. Do you have one of those Twitter at thingamajiggies? I actually do, and uh, real easy to do. Uh, just Twitter slash A, Papadimoulis. <laughs> you know, go type that in. and uh, i um, I'm just going
3: to type in LXP and then hope it works.
4: <laughs> but it won't. And uh, uh, to, to, to our listeners, if you have any questions you might want us to play on the show, you can either call the Stack Overflow hotline, which is done by dialing at 646 Eight two six three eight seven nine, or record a little voice fi- file using your computer thingamajiggy in mp3 or vorbis format and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com and uh, hopefully we'll play it in a future episode um, send us some good ones because we're, kind of, uh, we're kind of running out uh, of uh, interesting questions um, ideas for uh, me and Jeff to talk about um, next week Oh, there's a uh, uh, next week, I'll tell you about next week in a minute, but there's a wiki, a transcript wiki, which is linked to from the show notes at blog.stackoverflow.com where uh, listeners from around the world contribute by transcribing parts, bits and pieces of our uh, podcast and eventually hopefully developing the full thing um, for the benefit of the hearing impaired and also to make something that you can link to if you want to get angry at Jeff. For example, Michael Pryor has been doing a great job of writing down all of Jeff's comments on the third-class languages of the world in that, uh, in that transcript from last week's podcast. so You can find that in the show notes at blog.stackoverflow.com. Next week, Dave Yegi. That's it. See you next week. See you next week.
0: You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky.
1: The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of The Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley.
0: I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.